Thank you, all three of you. You encouraged. And Mike, just one correction. Sherry's actually 27. Happy birthday. I, I agree with Mike and everything he said, so I won't repeat it. But I will say to dads, may those socks and ties bless you today. For those of you that are getting those. Well, as Mike alluded to, we are obviously in times of social unrest and so we have been seeking to talk through those things sometimes through our one another meetings trying to teach through those also through dear God and I've had the privilege to speak to people in different parts of the country I'll be doing so again today at 1 p.m. to talk through these types of issues and to help people think through how to think through some of these things. I do not have all the answers, I just have perspective that some think is helpful. And so because it's kingdom work, I see it as kingdom, I wanna be faithful to do that, but not more faithful than what I feel called to do for our church. Now last week I talked about this idea of sort of theopolitical gospel versus biblical gospel. And I asked this question, What Gospel, do your actions say you believe? Now, obviously, there's a number of different ways, but it's best to kind of put things sometimes in these sort of polarizations. And so I believe the theopolitical gospel is real, and obviously the biblical gospel is real. But what I want to do today is I want to double down on that reality, and I want to explain some of my definitions, what I mean when I say these things, and I want to give you scriptural justification for what I mean, because I think what's missing in a lot of the conversations, particularly the theopolitical conversations, what is missing from believers, I think, is biblical definition, biblical warrant. So I want to give some definition. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today, so it'll pop up on your screen. There is no one defining verse today that we're going to stay on. We're going to do a lot today. It'll be a lot of information but this is the world we live in, it's the information age. Don't get mad at me, get mad at culture. It's the information age we live in. So we are inundated with a lot of information. So we're gonna start with, well, let me say this. A lot of you have seen me say this. As a matter of fact, last week's sermon and this week's sermon is part two, is entitled Stay Balanced. Those of you who follow me on Twitter or Facebook will sometimes see me post things, and at the bottom it'll say hashtag stay balanced. And I've had some people go back and forth with me on what does that mean when I say stay balanced. Some people think I mean to be 50-50, equal on all sides. That's not what I mean by being staying balanced. Don't, no one can be perfectly balanced to be 50-50. That's not what I mean when I say stay balanced. What I'm talking about is essentially this. Staying balanced is the ability, and I would say even the desire, like it's a desire for me now, to agree with any side and critique any side because there's truth on every side. So, in, so let me put that in context. So in the conversations that we are re-envisioning re on race, I can 
agree with critiques of black people and can also give critiques from black people and by God's grace not be offended because there are things that are true when people say about black culture, black community at times or segments of culture. And there are things that are not true. I see a lot of problems with the left. And I see a lot of problems with the right. And I believe it's biblical to be balanced. I believe it's biblical to be balanced. I believe any believer should be able to critique, if necessary, both his side of the perspective and the other side perspective. That's very difficult. People think they're balanced, but you tip the scales and you'll see that most people may add a small thing right here. Yeah, we need to grow in this. However, and here's the laundry list of things that you're, the people who disagree with you need to grow in. I believe it's staying balanced is biblical. And one of the verses that I gather this from is Romans 3, 10, and 10 through 12. It'll be on your screen. And here's what it says in Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have alike become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now in the Greek, all means all. So that doesn't mean all the conservatives and not all the liberals and not all the libertarians in between and not all the people who don't care about any of these things. It's all. It's all. This passage is not telling me that some people know what they're doing and some don't. As it relates to God, it's saying all fall short of the glory of God. So for me, that helps me think, well, why would I put any confidence in anyone in and of itself, especially as we are people who are headed towards an eternal palace? Another verse that guides my perspective is one we've looked at before in a previous sermon on preferences in Romans 14, verses 3 and 4. This is what he says. One who eats must not look down from on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does. Because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. So here you have this reality that the Lord is saying, well, who are you to judge someone who has different preferences than you? I mean, for all intent purposes, your political emphasis is a preference. Because the Bible doesn't tell you to vote Democrat or Republican or care about any of those things. That doesn't tell you you shouldn't care about them, but it doesn't, doesn't command us to. So on one, at one level, it's a preference. And some people are red, some people are blue. Some are donkeys, some are elephants. But the reality is, if they're a believer, then who are we to judge people who disagree with us politically? Their preferences. It's going to be some people think this, some people think that. Okay, fine. So I stay balanced, stay balanced. God's word, stay balanced. No one's righteous. Another verse that guides my perspective and how I think about these things is comes from Ephesians. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 6. 
There's two verses in particular that stand out to me, but I'm going to read these five passages that you see on your screen if you're at home watching this online somewhere. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. These are empty arguments. I don't know about you. I don't know how often you do this, but I am in conversations with academics, both Christian and atheists. And a lot of the stuff they're bringing up are empty arguments. It is fascinating to me, the empty arguments that come up, and they strongly are making their claims and swear up and down that what they believe is objective. It says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. It doesn't say don't vote. I'm not partnering with these folks. I'm not taking up any ideology that's going to tempt me to be angry at my brother because he disagrees with me politically. When we're in heaven, ain't going to be no donkeys and elephants in heaven unless God allows those animals to persist. There is no, no political system, no philosophical system. It's Christ and us. Verse 7, therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. It's testing. It's a process. Romans 12, 1 calls it discern, discerning what the will of the Lord is. There are things the Lord doesn't make clear to us. We understand morality, we understand eternity, we understand some things, but there's some things that God doesn't make clear. Who did Jesus vote for? Who did he, who did he vote for? He told Peter, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. You see these articles, well, Jesus is a liberal. <laughs> okay. Verse 11, here's the verse. This is one of the big ones for me. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. Hashtag stay balanced. So when I hear an argument that I know is wrong or that the data is limited, listen, let me just say this. There's a book I'm reading called Personal Knowledge. It's written in 1958 by Michael Poyani. And what it, what it is is he was a brilliant scientist who wrote a book that basically is describing the, um, the, the falsehood of objective. He calls it the myth of objective knowledge, because in the science realm, there's a sense of what, the, 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 what they come to, their conclusions are sort of objective, and things like emotion and experience and other things are somewhat subjective. And so he, he cracks a hole into this reality, and he makes this point, and hopefully this makes sense, but I'm going to simplify. Here's his perspective. He says, there is no such thing as objective, as objective knowledge. He said, because one, the person who is pursuing that knowledge is not an object, but a subject. And when that person determines what information they're going to use to get to their goal, they by default eliminate other information that could contribute to that goal, thereby it makes it subjective. In other words, once I decide this is what I'm going to read, these are the facts that I'm going to use to make my point, there's other facts that make other points that you're not using to make your point. Therefore, your point can't be objective because it has to consider all the ramifications. In other words, every stat you hear from every politician when they say it's fact is not objective. 
It's not objective. And these people talk fast and they talk well, and we believe every number they spit out of their mouths. Do not participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. So I stay balanced. I have no problem saying that I think Trump is morally bankrupt. I have no problem saying that. You judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. I don't know his heart, never hung with him, probably won't. But I have no problem saying he is morally bankrupt. And I have no problem saying that Joe Biden is presumptuously inept. No problem. Don't know him, won't hang with him, no problem saying it. We are doomed this fall. No problem saying it. Get mad at me. Any believer should be able to consistently critique the side they're on. Because the side that you're on has people who are sinful, who do not love God, and do not want to worship God irrespective of some of the values they present that you agree with. Their ultimate aim is not your ultimate aim, assuming your ultimate aim is to glorify God until he returns or he calls you home. Any believer should be able to critique their side. I'm not talking about, yeah, yeah I agree with that, but you ever have someone say, Hey, I just want to ask you for forgiveness. I was, I was wrong. I, I shouldn't have said that. But you said, and then once they say the but, man, it was like that whole thing just went away. And everything they say after that is what they really feel. You know how they say, tell us how you really feel. Oh, and nowadays we say, keep that same energy. Keep that same energy when you critique your side. I've used the term theopolitical. And I explained it last week. Let me double down on that today. I want to double down on what I mean. So I said this, the, it's, it's, it's Theo, it's an acknowledgement of God, but it's overwhelmed and interwoven deeply with politics. And the ethic of politics is loyalty. So a theolitical or theopolitical Christianity is heavily influenced by loyalty to a particular party. Its philosophy is either or. Right? So either you think this or that it has no grace for nuance. And its strategy is to dismiss and dismantle those who are not loyal to its core doctrines. In the context of the church, it's a gospel that's so interwoven with politics that it's almost unnoticeable. It's almost unnoticeable. So the scriptures, people will read and they'll consult the scriptures, but their obedience to them is optional towards those who are on the other side of their political ideology. This is what I mean. What I mean is this. When your political philosophy allows you to make negative, sinful comments about people who profess to believe like you without any data that they have any real moral sin issues that you should be calling out, then you've given over to a theological gospel. I hear people say this. I hear people say this all the time. White evangelicals, I hope you're happy you voted for Trump. And those will be coming from white evangelicals to say that. I never hear those white evangelicals say black evangelicals who voted for Trump. Keep that same energy. We don't say that. We don't say Hispanic evangelicals. Black people and Hispanic people voted for Trump too. I would give you the numbers, but it wouldn't be helpful.
It's so interwoven with politics that you see the problem as the people who don't agree with your political ideology. When you believe the best about those who believe the same, to share the same doctrine as you, but you berate and dismiss those who do not. This is theological gospel. It agrees with Christianity in principle, but it fundamentally sees those who disagree with you politically as the enemy. It's bipartisan. So it's liberal and conservative. These are believers. Believers. Who get so caught up on what politicians are saying. Who's going to sit in the White House? All these things. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying we shouldn't care. But when I care so much about it that I'm willing to sin against people who are my brothers, we've crossed the line. And you have to prove to me biblically that Jesus is okay with that. Don't prove to me emotionally. Prove to me biblically that Jesus is okay with that. Because I can prove to you biblically that he's not. Now, we're talking a lot about politics, theopolitical. Theopolitical doesn't have to necessarily be politics. It doesn't have to be. You could be like, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't care about politics. Not so fast. Theopolitical po politics is essentially a philosophy. It's philosophy, pretty much. So you don't have to be, you might not be into politics at all, but you might find your distinction with maybe your age. Maybe your distinction is, oh, that generation does this and this generation, our generation didn't think that way, and our generation, and it's all about your generation. Well, you can fall into that category. Because if your generation is better than this generation, or you don't understand that generation because they do this, and it tempts you to look down on this generation, or look, or whoever that is, and you are theological. You are theological. Maybe it's gender. Oh, men are just this. I'm tired of men. Okay, good. Then that's your theological gospel. Ain't no such thing as all men are this, and ain't no believe all women that. Women lie too. Doesn't have to be literal. It could be preferences. You separate, people separate themselves by their preferences that all don't got nothing to do with politics. So think of theopolitical or theolitical, not just as politics. That's the context I'm talking about now because that's the most dominating sort of lens that people are viewing a lot of things from. And we're in a presidential cycle, so we're going to see these things through the political lens. And most of the articles we'll see are going to be through that political lens. But it can be age, gender, preferences. Whatever separates you from other people and allows you the freedom to disregard, dismiss your brothers and sisters because they're different from you, that's theological. It's not biblical. Some verses that help me fight against this is Colossians 2.8. says this. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Listen to that. Captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. That is 100% politics. Based on human tradition. I was reading the Declaration of Independence the other day on Juneteenth. I was reading the Declaration of Independence. And it's funny because there's a section 
in the Declaration of Independence. This is Declaration of Independence, right? The founding document. Founding document. I read this section. I read the whole thing. It was fascinating. But there's this, most of it's about the King of England, so none of us care. But there's this section where it says that if the, I'm paraphrasing. I should actually read it, but if the, I should read it. I might come, but I'm going to paraphrase it. If the people, if the people see that a form of government, an aspect of government is not allowing them to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then it's incumbent upon the people to overthrow that government and establish the government that allows you to pursue that to that end. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but it's fascinating. That's exactly what's happening today. And people are mad. The founding fathers put it in their document, depending on how you want to slice it. I think it's hilarious. It's based on human tradition. It's based on human tradition. All men are created equal, written by men who owned slaves and were slaves across the country in the South. It's a document based on human tradition. Is it helpful? Sure, absolutely. I'm glad we have a Constitution, glad we have a Bill of Rights, all of it. But is it based on Christ? No. Another verse that helps me think through these things. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to miss. In light of who we are as believers and where we're headed as believers, many of the things that we argue over or stand with or just miss compare to truth. There's going to be a lot of, man, my bad. My, my, I'm sorry when we get to heaven. Man, you were my brother on earth. There, there are believers right now who make YouTube videos, faith, they got a following doing nothing but critiquing other believers. There are people who are not pastors that have no idea what it takes to put together a sermon, who have no responsibility but to judge what, what, you're, what, that, what other pastors do who have to lead people and have to walk the, the dangerous line of trying to help people who have totally different perspectives and preferences and they sit down and critique people's sermons and want you to follow them and subscribe to their videos on YouTube or get likes and retweet their stuff. And I'm sure the Lord is pleased. I am sure he is excited to see people slandering elders. You don't even know these people. I'm not talking about heretical, real heresy either. And even then, who are you to say something? You're not even in their church. You don't, if anybody in your church, if anybody in our church it's going to be led away by heresy. I'm definitely going to say something. But there's a lot of people out there saying they're doing stuff. That's on them. They're standing for God. I care about us. It's theopolitical. Let me give you an example of theopolitical. For those of you, for those of you who say thoughts when you post a Candace Owens video. So she'll tweet something like this. After George Floyd died. So George Floyd had his was, was died at, with, his, un, with his neck underneath a police officer named Derek Chauvin's knee, and people have been outraged by that, and that's where a lot of the stuff, the civil unrest, is happening right now. And so she tweeted this less than two weeks ago, 10 days ago. I've had time to reflect on my video 
hashtag George Floyd, and you guys were right, I was wrong. So that, that statement's a mockery. She's saying to the people who said that was wrong for her to say negative things about him, he's a criminal, he's this, that we're celebrating the worst of our kind, which is hilarious, and you look at it in light of some of the things that, so then she said, after she said I was wrong, she tweeted, I went, he went to prison nine times, not 7.1, 7. I missed two, easy, two earlier convictions for theft and drugs. But he started a new chapter with meth and fentanyl. So let's throw out two, our hero two more funerals. Mockery. Mockery. And then she says, I want our children to be able to look back and honor the brave men who terrorized black America their entire lives. Mockery. This dude has a mother, father, and people who love him. She doesn't know him at all. I have a picture of him holding a Bible surrounded around dudes at a men's Bible study. I watched a brief four-minute video of him talking about how wrong he was in the past and trying to get the youth in Houston and Minnesota to not follow in those footsteps. I watched these videos. She mocks this dude. And then she'll bring up, this is just the left cultural Marxists, social justice warriors. Thoughts coming from believers. So here's a question. What exactly is a cultural Marxist biblically? What is that? When your theologians or you, or that's it's cultural Marxism, what, what is that biblically? What sin is that biblically that a believer should repent of? What is a cultural Marxist biblically? I'm not talking about the world. I don't care about the world. I'm talking about believers. What is a cultural Marxist biblically? What are you asking a believer to repent of, to turn away from? What is a social justice warrior biblically? Like, what's the issue in the Bible? Like, what, where is a social justice warrior where is a believer disobeying the Bible? Where is that? What is that biblically? Help me, please. Because I hear these terms, but I don't know what a believer is supposed to stop or start doing in light of them. I watch these theologians, let's just cultural Marxism, and that's a threat to the gospel. What is the threat? What, is, what sin is cultural Marxism? What sin is a social justice war committing biblically? And I'm, not, I'm, I'm not even being facetious. I'm saying, well, I want to know, what sin is this? What sin is virtue signaling? What's the biblical basis for that? What sin is this? What sin is it? So Candace Owens will berate George Floyd, but then defend Donald Trump's character? Really? I don't hear any of these theologians say what this is biblically. If you have any sources, please let me know. What are these things biblically? 
If there's a problem with the believer biblically, then use the authoritative, inspired by the Holy Spirit word of God to adjust them. What is it biblically? Shortly after Donald Trump stood in front of a church and held a Bible up, which someone said, is that your Bible? He said, it's a Bible. Well, thanks. I think we all saw. We we know that. We were asking, do you read it? What's your favorite verse? Shortly after, he was mocked by the Democrats, which I think it was a photo op. Shortly after that, you'll see Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and some other Democrats kneeling with the Kenty cloth on for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And that's a photo. So that wasn't a photo op. They just happened to be kneeling, and someone said, let me take a picture of this. So that wasn't a photo op. Insane to me. And then they're wearing the Kenty cloth. Do you know what that is? The Kenty cloth comes from the Ashanti tribe who are notoriously known for selling African slaves to the Europeans. So the very thing that you're kneeling in solidarity for, from the history of slavery, that you're attributing to what happened to George Floyd, you're wearing the cloth of the African tribe that sold us into slavery that allowed for that to happen. Well done. In the immortal words of of, uh, uh, Fred Sanford, you big dummy. Someone said to me online, well, that the Congressional Black Caucus gave him that. What are they supposed to say? There's other black cloth you can wear. That's what they supposed to say. Wear a dashiki or something. You wore a cloth representing the people who sold black people, Africans into slavery that everybody's, that we're all mad at right now. And this is the people that, the voice of the people, you're not even sharp enough to know when you wear something and stand in solidarity. It's history. We're doomed this fall. But here's a question for you guys. What is white supremacist biblically? What is that biblically? What is white privilege biblically? Like, what does that mean? How does a believer repent of white privilege? What what sin issues are we asking if it's white privilege and white supremacy, then it has to be white people. What sin are we asking our white brothers and sisters to repent of? Or anyone? Because Hispanics will get called this too. Asians too. I've heard them call Asians that. And they're like, I'm not white. What do you mean? What, what are white evangelicals who voted for Trump supposed to repent of? Like, what does that mean? What exactly did they do wrong? What, what does that mean? Like, what, what biblical passages are we working from when we're trying to process this in a way that serves our brothers and sisters? How is it not the same thing as calling someone a cultural Marxist? 
or social justice warrior. What's the biblical basis for these terms? If you're going to use them or agree with people who use them, then what are you concerned about biblically? You should be able to, instead of put thoughts, have scripture to back why you think what you think. I would hope, at least an attempt, we should. I see people saying this, you're being secular and, and pr promoting secular ideologies and that, and those same people are critiquing people using secular terms. I don't know, you know, when you call someone a cultural Marxist, that's a, that's a negative term. And the way when, when theologians say it, they're basically saying this person is not a believer almost. Almost. You call someone a social justice warrior, you're saying that they're out of step with the, God, with the gospel, with the Bible. Well, help us see how. Help us see how. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't free the Romans, the Jews from the Romans. He didn't stop oppression. Well, actually, he did. But you have to understand what Jesus came for. You see, Jesus didn't think the Jews were the only ones oppressed. Jesus thought the Romans are oppressed too because he knew that the Romans are controlled by Satan. Jesus came to free all those who were oppressed. That means everyone who's oppressed by Satan and doesn't know God. So Jesus didn't just see the Jews as oppressed. The Romans, who were the earthly oppressors, he also came for them too. He came for the Samaritans too. And it would later come for all Gentiles like you and I who are not Jewish. He definitely stood up for the oppressed. It just depends on your definition of oppressed is the issue. See, this theological gospel, it's all or nothing. There's no room for individuality or nuance. So if I like one thing, then you throw me in there as liking everything. There's no ability to be like, hey, I can't stand Trump, but I, I'm a conservative and those are just the values I'm going to vote. But now if you vote for Trump, you're a white, you're a racist. Really? That's theological. It's not biblical. You vote Democrat, you're a cultural Marxist and you're following the left's agenda. Really? Really? Wow. Where's the Romans 14 at for the Christian? Where's that at? Where's 1 Corinthians 10.31? Where's that at? Theological, theopolitical is pervasive. It is affecting more believers than we know. There are people watching this right now somewhat offended. Come back biblically. I'm, I'm open. I'm open. I'm having this conversation a lot. Talking about this a lot with a lot of people. I'm open. I'm only saying this because I love our church. The biblical gospel acknowledges Jesus as Lord and it sees the world primarily from a biblical point of view, more than a political one. Sure, it might participate in politics, 
but it recognizes that their kingdom is not of this world. And the ethic of the biblical gospel is love. Its philosophy is reconciliation. I read this verse last week from 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Here's the biblical gospel's emphasis. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. So there's no political affiliation in that. It's just God and Christ. Christ is the mediator between humanity, us and God. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. That's the biblical gospel. See, the biblical gospel understands that the greatest problem is not who did you vote for. The greatest problem is who do you vouch for? Because if you don't vouch for Jesus, then he's not going to vouch for you. You got people talking about who you voting for, and the Bible's talking about who you vouching for. All these people, all these people, we worry to fighting over politics. All these people. And it's like they ain't vouching for the wrong thing. If you don't vouch for Jesus in this life, he said, if anyone denies me in this life, I will deny them in the next life. That's from him. That's 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. 12 to be specific. It's not about who did you vote for, it's who do they vouch for. That's the biggest problem people have. I don't care if you vote red or blue. I care about what's going to happen to you when you stand before God. And I guarantee the pearly gates will not have any card carrying anybody in it. It'll be a cross carrying person. The strategy of the biblical gospel is mission. Politics is an opportunity. The world we live in right now is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to have conversations with people and to ask them why, why are they so hurt? Why the, where's their hope? What, what gives a person hope in the political spectrum? Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say it's all bad. It, it governs us. I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about in, in and of itself. I'm talking about the allegiance to it when it causes us to sin against our own brothers or any philosophy that you have that separates you from your brothers. That's the concern of the scriptures. The biblical gospel believes that God is sovereign. And it understands that politics is going to go both ways. In 1980 to 1992, it was the Republican. You had Ronald Reagan, George Bush. 92 to 2000, it was Democrat, Bill Clinton. 2000 to 2008, Republican, George W. Bush. 2008 to 2016, Democrat. It just goes back and forth. And guess what? We're still here. The church is still here. I was a part of this church for... Those last for what, three presidencies now I've been here. We're still here. We still have a responsibility. We still got to do homeless outreach. We still got to do one you and reach Maryland. We still got to influence to connect with the community over here. We still got to carry one another's burdens. 
Has Trump being in office stopped you from doing any of those things? Did Obama? Did it take away any of those responsibilities? It may have taken away the desire, but not the responsibilities. The biblical gospel ethic is love. Let's go back to that George Floyd example from Candace Owens. Let me give you a different example from Jesus. Jesus is in the temple in John chapter 8, and a woman comes in and is brought in by man, and she's sinful. This isn't an issue of her guilt or innocence. She sinned against the Mosaic law by committing adultery, and the one, the God, they don't know this, they don't know this. The Pharisees who bring her in, or the religious leaders who bring her in, they don't know that he's God. They don't believe that. But he knows that he wrote the very law that he told Moses to write, that they're now bringing her in so that he can say in front of everyone she must be killed, and that would turn people off to his ministry. And so Jesus, sharp, sharp, says he goes down to the ground and is drawing something. Man, wouldn't we all love to see that? What if Jesus was just playing tic-tac-toe? He was like this, man trying to beat himself. How is God going to beat God in tic-tac-toe? And then he just says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Dude's moonwalk back. First moonwalk ever. And then it's Jesus and this woman left alone. And here's what Jesus says to her in John 8. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. You see the compassion he had on this woman? That's the biblical gospel. Now mirror that with social justice warrior, white supremacist. Mirror that compassion. Here's a woman who was sinful. What about David, what I mentioned? whom God said is a man after his own heart, who commits one of the most heinous sins in the scriptures, and not one sin. He has sex with another woman. He gets her pregnant. He tries to have her husband have sex with her to be deceitful. He's honorable and won't do it because his brothers are fighting in the war. So he tells his general to put him in the front lines, and he gets killed, all so that he can cover up his sin. And so God punishes him, and the baby that she had by him dies. And this is one of the men that the Jews still revere as a great man, committed this wicked sin. He went to prison nine times, not seven. I missed two earlier convictions for theft and drugs. Says you're conservative that you. But here's Jesus saying this man is a man after my own heart. What about Paul? Paul murders the church. In Acts 7, when they're stoning Stephen, what does it say? It says they laid Stephen's cloak at the foot of a young man named Saul. So he stood there and watched and approved of them killing Stephen. And this is the man that God chooses 
to shake up the world. What about the thief on the cross who acknowledges in the midst of experiencing judgment for his sin? And God says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the biblical gospel. This is the gospel that you and I say we believe. And the ethic is love. It's not dismantling and dismissing people because they have criminal histories. The man you listen to week in and week out, whom you encourage, whom you thank, whom you pray for, has a criminal history. So if I get killed and Candace Owens says, well, look, he did this. He had a gun charge and went to jail for a little bit and sold drugs. Are you going to take that video and say thoughts? Thoughts? No Bible, there's no love in this theological gospel. We're getting swayed, church. We're getting swayed. Verses that help shape me are Ephesians 4. Beginning of verse 13, Look at, listen to the goal. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christfulness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. That's exactly what this is exactly what this is. When is the last time you watched one of these rallies from Black Lives Matter or whoever make you think after hearing them talk and demand it? When's the last time you heard them say, after watching it, thought, man, I want to love my neighbors? Is that what you think when you hear Trump talk or when you hear Candace Owens or Brandon Tatum or Anthony Brian Logan or Whoever else, is that what you think after you hear them rant and rave about how terrible the guy was who got killed and lost his life and the police are justified and whatever it is? Is that what you walk away with is I want to love the people who they're talking about? You'd be a fool if you said yes, because you know that's not true. We know that's not true. But yet, this is your king? This is your king? Verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, it says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful. I could stop there. Listen to this. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. 
is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Shall I go back and read the tweet? Shall I pull up quotes from both the left and the right and show you that everything that I'm saying, that the Bible is saying, is not happening? And when we're inundated with those things and we're affected by those things and we comment on those things and we put our stuff out about those things and there's no Christ in those things, it affects the way we process those things and the things of Christ that are our eternal value that put us in eternal perspective and relationship with him become not enough anymore. What about 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26? Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. Now, you may think, I don't argue, but, don't, but best believe when you put up thoughts on your Facebook page from someone who is with that kind of energy, it means you agree with that energy. You agree with what's being said. Unless you qualify, I don't like all of this. Here's the one line I agree with. Then don't show me an 18-minute video. Give me the quote, let me read that. I don't want to watch no 18-minute videos. Verse 23, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. Listen to verse 25, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Perhaps God will grant them. And then verse 26 is the kicker for me. This is why I sit with, when I, talk, when I sit in these, some of these situations, I'm not always with people who agree with me. One of the things about trying to stay balanced is you get enemies on both sides. I get black people who are mad. I get non-black. I get every, everybody is all on both sides. And I'm just sitting there eating a hot dog. Listen to verse 26. Then they may come to hear, then they may come to their senses. Listen to this. And escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So all the people that you're angry at that are non-Christians have been taken captive. This is God's word. If you take issue, take issue with the scriptures. He says they have been taken captive to do the devil's will. These people are still oppressed. Doesn't matter what top they play. President Trump, the leader of the free world, is a slave to the devil if he's not a believer. And I'm not going to say that he is just because I don't know his heart. I judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. I'm not, listen, don't, don't be so, don't try to be more loving than Jesus. We just give everybody, you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. I'm not going to judge his eternal destination because I don't know, a thief on the cross made it. I'm going to judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. These people are trapped by the devil. And God says, maybe we, maybe he'll grant them repentance because of our gentleness in talking to them. Because they know the biggest issue is not who you vote for, it's who you vouch for. These people are vouching for the enemy, and some of them don't even know it. Listen to what Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 says. It says, put on the full armor of God 
so that you can stand against the schemes of the liberal left. So you can stand against the religious right. Nah, so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So you can stand against that generation, those millennials, because they, or the baby boomer generation, they really mess things up. So you can stand against people who have a different preference than you. They can't wait to come back to church, but you ain't never coming back. Nah, so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So you can stand against who? Black Lives Matter. So you can stand against who? Those who say all lives matter. No. The real enemy is the schemes of the devil. Then it says, for our struggles, verse 12, doubling down on that statement, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that side or this side or these people or the LGBT community or them. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them and support them in the sense that you agree with all their ways of life. But they're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. That doesn't mean I'm going to be like, hey, guys, love is approval. No way. LGBT just had a law passed that they can't be discriminated against in jobs and stuff. I support that. I don't think they should be able to lose their jobs and stuff like that because they're gay. Or that. I think that's wicked. It's America, right? Give them the same rights. Let them keep their jobs and stuff. Let them don't. I think that's. I think I agree with that perspective. Where I draw the line is when you tell me I have to approve of a particular lifestyle that I can't because I have a biblical gospel, not a theopolitical one. I support treating people with dignity and respect because they're image bearers of God. And if you're going to make laws, fine, I get it. But there are going to be some laws that are, are subservient to me than God's law. And I'll take the consequences for that. Look what he says in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And this, this, listen to this, but against the rulers. These are all demonic. These are all demonic sort of realms. The rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness. I love the ESV this present darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. He says, you got to put on the full armor of God. And you know what? I'm sorry, but a lot of us or some of us, maybe a few of us are putting on a full armor against other people. The wrong enemy. The wrong enemy. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and we're going to get into the specifics of what this looks like. There are two things that I think we really have to do to really own this, and that's what next week's message is going to be about. But we need to take seriously, if we're believers for real, then we need to take seriously the reality of what it says we should believe. Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, we're going to fall short. But don't give ourselves, don't justify our falling short of being loving because we know we're going to fall short at some point. That's not what we do. That's not what we do. Some of us need to go to some people and say, man, please forgive me. I posted this in spite, or said this, or said that in spite. And I said that, I'm going to say this, and Mike might even correct me for it, but I'll take it. But I'm going to say this because I love our church and I'm serious and I believe it's biblical. If anyone in this church thinks that if someone votes opposite of what you think they should vote and you can't be with them, then leave. Then leave. We'll support you. Leave. Because this will not ever 
as long as I'm here, I know as long as Mike is here, this will never be a church where that's the defining moment for us. If someone votes for Trump and you can't be around them, there are churches around here. They will support you. If someone votes Democrat and you can't be around them, they vote for Joe Biden, then find a church that submits to that perspective that you have. But I will not let that happen to this church. I will preach against it every week if I have to. Because it's not biblical, it's theological. There were former Pharisees and there were temple prostitutes all worshiping together in the early church. And it was awkward and they were trying to figure out how do we do this? But it got done. We can handle people having a different perspective than us. If you can't, I respect your decision. But you will not use our church as a platform or the relationships you have to say stuff and not hear something from us. It's not going to happen. I'm not that kind of pastor. And if you go to this church, you know it. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'd rather you get mad at me for something I said than God be mad at you for something you did. No way. Or, or, that, or that Shannon Sharp uh, gif with the glasses on. No way. No glasses. 100%. I love you guys too much. And if that's not enough, I understand. I'll get it. If when we come back, we lost some people, we'll handle it. We trust the Lord with that. But I'm not going to let our church become that. That's not what it's about. So vote for who you're going to vote for, fine. Believe in what you believe. I'm not saying you can't dispute facts. Do all of that. But don't let it allow you to be unloving towards your brother or sister. Don't let whatever it is, age, gender. I'm not talking talk about gender. I'm talking about man. And woman. I'm not talking about who identifies as what. And that's not what I'm talking about. Some will say all men are this, or all women are this, or this or that. And I'm, nah, we're not talking about that. Preferences. No, church. The ethic of the biblical gospel is love. Its philosophy is reconciliation. So let me reiterate so you don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't care where you stand politically. Vote for who you're going to vote for. That's not what I'm talking about. I have my own conviction with, with politics. I'm not asking anybody to join my conviction. But don't tell me, well, then don't say nothing. Then when stuff happens, you daggone right, I'm going to say something. I'm going to always say something because the Bible allows me that freedom to do that. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter who is in the office, who's running, who's on the council, who's doing what. I don't care what Securities Exchange Commission, I don't care who it is. We're all capable capable of sinning. But we're all, those of us who are believers, are capable of loving. And that, that is what we have to do. Next week, we're going to get very, very specific. There are two particular things that I think we need to see. They come right out of the scriptures. It's one thing that I feel like I've been talking to other people about. And as, it, as we're talking about it, in fact, at one o'clock today, I'm going to be sharing it with another uh, church. There's something to consider from the Bible that I think is the way out. What is the way out of all this white supremacist versus cultural Marxist or whatever it is? And I'm using politics because that's the primary lens. I know you're not, everyone's not political and all this stuff. I get that. I understand that. 
So if it's not politics, then don't dismiss yourself from thinking of what you, what distances you from your brother. What philosophy, what, what, what preference, what distances you from your brother. That's what we're talking about. That's what the Bible cares about. I've seen people mock things the Bible calls for. Like patience or love or unity, stuff like that. I've seen people mock that. Believers, no way. No way. We stand. As hard as it is, we stand for Christ because he stood for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father, happy Father's Day. I don't have an earthly dad, so I pray to you. Thank you, first and foremost, for making me a dad and allowing me to have three beautiful boys that I love very much. Thank you for the kind of relationship I have with them, one of physical affection and communicative affection. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for allowing me, at least up to this point, the time to, to help them, shape them, mold them, help them, love them, hold them, all the things that come with being a dad, both the lion and the lamb of it, both the grizzly bear and the teddy bear of it. Thank you for allowing me to, to be those things for them, and I pray for more time to do that as they grow up in a chaotic world that prides itself on doing the opposite of what you said. And it pulls us in as believers because we can identify with certain things. As a black man, there are things I can identify with and can agree with and get charged up about. And you know by your grace, I have to, I have to, I to make myself listen to those who I know would disagree with my visceral perspective so I can be sharper, so I can see the other side. Thank you for giving me that desire and ability to do that. Because you know it's not always easy for me. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would protect our church from becoming inundated with these empty philosophies. And it's not that we don't celebrate the restraining of evil. I am grateful for all the police reforms that are necessary. I'm grateful for Black Lives Matter and its ability to expose certain things. I'm grateful for any secular organization that is about restraining evil. I'm grateful for our federal government and the way it has restrained evil, both military and war with other countries and even domestically. But there are some times when those who restrain evil are also evil. And we have to deal with that. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church fight the good fight. It doesn't mean we don't have political leanings. It doesn't mean that we have to be 50-50. It just means we have to be willing to recognize the truth is that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we can critique ourselves and, and those who agree with what we think as, as well as we can critique others. 
Lord, you, you, Lord, you've put me in situations where I've heard nothing but black, black people getting critiqued over and over. And there are things I can agree with and testify to. But then you've also put me where I'm able to critique from the black perspective, from what is, and, and to push back. And others have received that. Lord, may that continue. May today go well today, Lord, as we talk through these things. But Lord, for our church, Lord, I know it's Father's Day. So many of us will be, will be caught up in that. We're grateful for that. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to be biblically sensitive in these times. I think many of us, many of us, talking about our church, have lost our way. Not completely, but we've just been a bit affected by what's happening. And it makes sense. We're people. We're human beings. We don't always know what to do. We don't always know how to, what to do with our emotions and our feelings. We're hurt. We're offended. We're tired. And we lash out. And that's okay. There's grace for that. There's grace for that. You forgive us for when we're wrong. You encourage us when it's right. There's grace for that. I'm not talking about those things. Lord, but prevent us from developing a mindset that is more politically based, theopolitically based, than it is biblically based. Even if we disagree with our brothers or people who vote for such and such. Lord, when we're in heaven, there's going to be a lot of people there. And who we voted for will be not even matter because it's not just who it's who vouches for us. We want to vouch for Jesus in this life so that he vouches for us in the next life. I'm not going to stand before you and be able to stand on my own. I'm going to need Jesus to vouch for me. And say, Father, he's with me. We need Jesus to vouch for us. I don't need any, I don't, no one who I vote for is going to vouch for me. They don't even know me. They won't take my calls and maybe not unless I have some measure of influence. But you hear my prayers. And you're the influencer. So I pray, Father, that you would help our church to stay balanced in a world of unbalanced scales. It is hard. But Lord, I pray that you would really do a work in our hearts and not dismiss things quickly and not wrongly condemn ourselves, but to just evaluate. What gospel do my actions, thoughts, and words say that I believe? for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sure, I have quite a few of them, but let me give you one of the most common ones. So here's what here's what people will say about people who talk about uh, police brutality, like when they talk about that. There's one of two things will happen, and they usually come in in in, in order like this. They'll say this: Well, the Washington Post, Washington Post, 
uh, last year that only nine black men were killed, unarmed black people were killed by, uh, by police officers. But yet, well, the black population is 13% of the population, and yet they're responsible for 52% of all murders, right? So that's what, they'll list the stuff like that, and they'll, they'll go with a couple more stats. Here's the problem with those stats. Number one, there is no federal database that searches and checks these things. It's this is all public information. The, there's no federal, as a matter of fact, uh, Representative Tim Scott, the only black senator, I think, there's a Republican, in 2017, he started the Walter Scott Notification Act that was after a black man who was killed unjustly by police down in Florida. He tried to get that act passed, and it didn't make the floor. When Jeff Sessions and them came in, Trump and them decided not to pursue that. It actually started during the Obama uh, era. And the reason what he was trying to do was develop a database within the federal government to track things like police officers' race, um, age, what, what, what the situation, what gun was used, the, the victim or whoever the person's race, age. He wanted to track these things because the state law enforcement is not required to submit their facts to the federal government. In fact, there are over 800,000 law enforcement officers in the country, and I can give you these stats if you want them. I can give you the actual stuff so you know I'm not just saying it. And only a couple hundred submit their data to the FBI. So one, the numbers, and the Bureau of Journal and Statistics, Justice and Statistics, excuse me, the BJS, told the Washington Post and other organizations, stop using this data because it's not accurate. I actually put this on my Facebook wall a couple days ago. So that's one. Here's the other stat. When you hear someone say, Black people are 13% of the population, but committed 52% of the murders last year. And, that's a, and you, then you think like, whoa, black people are prone to violence and criminality. That's kind of the perspective that you have. Here's a problem with those numbers, all right? 13% of the population of black people is actually 47 million people, all right? Last year, black people committed 5,025 murders. So technically, the numbers are right. 13% of the population, 52% of the murders. There were 9,000 plus murders last year. Black people committed 5,025 of those murders, all right? They don't break down those numbers because when you realize, wow, 5,025, I mean, okay, granted, those people lost their lives, but it's not like a crazy number. But when you hear 52% and you don't know what the numbers are, most people probably think millions of people get killed every day or every year. It actually is not that many. It's far lower than we actually think. But here's the question. If 5,025 murders were done by black people, let's assume that all of those black people were individuals. So individual black people killed 5,025 individual people. Out of 47 million people, that means 46,994,475 black people did not commit a murder. So it's not black people are 13% of the population that committed 52% of the murders. It's 0.1024% of black people committed 52% of the murders. But when people hear that, they think black people. Another stat, one more, welfare. When you think of, be honest, when you think welfare, what do you think of, who do you think of? Black people. White people are 60% in this country. Hispanics, 18.2%, black people, 13%. White people more than double the welfare rate in all categories. I can give you this stat if you want. I can give you it, more than double the welfare in all the country, in every category, White people are the number one people who, but when you think of welfare, you think black people. You think black people. There are more white people on welfare than black people in this country, and you never hear about them. Those are the types of things that when people bring up these stats, that's intellectually dishonest. And those are the things I try to expose to stay balanced.
So my default position would have been more systemic racism. I agree with all of it. I think the police are I mean, I, I would have had more of that perspective in and of itself. I mean, that's still a default position for me to, to agree with that perspective. But it was the Bible, man. It was, it was really understanding first and foremost, like, well, it was the Bible and in my experience. So it was the Bible and helping me have a theological grid for humanity. Like, I get my anthropology from the scriptures. So if all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, then yes, there's a lot of stuff that black people do, but also just American history. So like even what I was saying about black people are considered the most dangerous because we're prone to violence and criminality. It's like, well, what's the measuring stick for that? Right. Because if we measure all of American history and you figure we were 246 years slaves and then, you know, 100 years of Jim Crow or whatever that is. The, the dominant people who experienced who, who were the most evil and wicked were white people, particularly white males, right? So I thought, man, what's the metric for measuring these things? Because if you look at human American history, we haven't been the most prone to violence and criminality, right? So to me, I started to think like, all right, what are we really talking about here? Then I thought, okay, American, America has given us a theological gospel. Like how does a country who prides itself on Christianity all of a sudden allow itself to have slaves and do all the wickedness that it's done, right? So I started to think a little bit differently, and I said, I need the Bible as a grid. But then I just started to read and just gather my thoughts. I would read people who disagree with my default perspective. So I would listen to, I wasn't a Democrat, to, to, to be truly honest, I've only voted once in my life, 2012. I never really cared about voting. I voted once in 2012 because I felt like somebody convict, tried to convict me and told me I was supposed to, it was my sworn duty. And so I did it, it was a brother in the church. I did it to, to tell him I voted, but I think I voted for like Earl Dickens or something. I, I, I didn't vote for McCain or, or John K or, uh, Mitt Romney. I ain't vote for uh, Obama or Romney. I, vote, I wrote a name in a, or chose somebody that I knew wasn't going to win. So I never was a Democrat, but I would have said I probably would have had more liberal views. So I started to read conservatives and listen and hear their arguments. And I was like, all right, there's some truth in that. Because from my own experience, I saw that. I came from the streets. I came from that. I saw what that was like. I saw the level of, of what, I, I was one of those who felt like, look, my mom moved us to the suburbs. I went to high school, junior high, in the suburbs, we moved. So I could have technically just been a regular old dude, but there was something about being black that had to be with being a gangster, being criminal, and there was this, this push, and there, and there was a part of me that grew up like that, there was a part of me that felt like I was missing something. So, so I saw the pervasive nature that came from the influence of, wanting to be that way, to be hard, and then it became my life again. And so for me, a lot of it was like looking at my own experience, looking at history, and really listening to people who I know would disagree with me, helped me get balanced, helped me balance out. So I think when the Bible talks about empty arguments, it's kind of like arguments that rival what Christ says. So they're usually, so talk about like Colossians 2.8, right? Uh, empty philosophies and, and arguments that, that, that are built on human tradition rather than Christ. So I, it's about loyalty. It's about arguments that draw your attention away from who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what Jesus commands, commands us to do. Those are all arguments that rival, listen, we're, because it's spirit, listen, it's always spiritual warfare, right? Ephesians 6, 
It is spiritual warfare for every Christian all the time. There are seasons where it's more intense. But so everything is vying for our attention. So even stuff like you get up in the morning and you want to read your Bible, but then you end up checking Facebook and you get distracted and then you don't read. That's a little argument that rivals Christ because you're going, you want to spend time with the Lord or do things with the Lord. So a lot of those arguments are empty in the sense that compared to Christ, knowing him, obeying him and living for him, those things don't, they pale in comparison. But they pull at our attention and those are the things that, that drive us. And if you were like me, where you didn't grow up in the church and you have a considerable amount of time in your life where Christ wasn't your aim, then you see the destructive nature of those arguments, those worldviews, those philosophies that call you to a loyalty that is really just being taken captive by the devil and doing his will, whether subtly or grossly evil. So I'd have to know what they mean by advocacy. So listen, there, there's no, I mean, maybe the ad campaign, right? Maybe you're doing it. There's no, there is no, advocacy is, all, so the Bible is always about the condition of the heart, right? You can be a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or whatever. Like, it's always about the heart. Like, God, God looks at the heart of man. So you can advocate anything. Like, if you want to mar go march, but it's just the heart. It's like, man, if I'm angry at these people, like when Jesus said, pray for your enemies, you know why he said that? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Let me tell you one reason why I think he said that. Because when you pray for people, you grow an affection for them. Like you will not, I think it is impossible to continue to pray for people and just stay and just hate them. You may, they may, you know, they may, if they're doing really bad things to you, it may affect you. But I think there's a sense where praying is an intimate thing and you're bringing a person who's your enemy into an intimate conversation that you're having with God and asking God to bless them or save them, it, it's, it's intended to affect the way you see them. So advocacy, I don't want to get into like do this or do that or do that. I think it's really, um, it's the heart position. I think you can march, you can go to an abortion clinic and try to tell people don't do it. I mean, I think those things are legitimate, but they're heart issues. It's like, what's my heart disposition towards that person? The real work and we're going to talk about this really specifically next week. So I don't want to say too much because I really want to reserve for what I have to say next week. But I think that's the real work. The real work is not in like what group do I stand with. It's, 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 it's not, you know, what do I do? It's who do I believe in and how does that shape my advocacy? So I think, man, you, I mean, I think you can do what you can advocate many ways as long as what you're advocating doesn't directly contradict what the Bible teaches. I mean, I'm not going to stand with anyone who is pro promoting a message that contradicts what the Bible teaches. That's not advocacy. Uh, but I think, though, if it doesn't and it's just righteous justices, I, mean, I think there have been some police reform laws. I'm all right with them. I'm all right with them. Um, I think they're right. I think there's some like the LGBT law that passed that discriminates against them being able. I'm all right. But I hope they pass the Fairness for All Act which allows people to be able to have their convictions and not be seen as discriminatory because this is just what you believe your Bible teaches or your religion teaches. So I hope they pass the Fairness for All Act. I'm cool with that. But I, that's so why, again, it just, it just, it's the heart. It's the issue of the heart that God cares about. And if I'm so angry at the people who, who, who are on the other side of the, what I'm advocating for, then therein lies the issue.
balanced personalities, like in terms of. Sure, I've seen a lot of, well, actually, I've seen some people. To me, again, when I think of balance, balance isn't tone or tempo of speech or, or none of that type of stuff. Like when I think of balance, I think of the ability to hear everyone and see the right and wrong in, in all sides because all sides have sin in them and all sides have some measure of truth. So to me, that's how I think of balance. Like I'm not, so I think if, I think people can do that. I've seen people be able to receive critiques. I mean, I've been on panels. There are people who've seen some of the things I've been on where it's really me against four other people and I'm laughing, I'm joking with them. I mean, I'm, I'm disarming them with humor. I'm listening to them. I'm asking questions, but I push back. And, and then people, I mean, so again, to me, it's really, so yes, I have seen it, but it's more about, it's the, it's the pursuit of knowing that everyone on some level is capable of and often wrong about things. It's that pursuit. It's knowing that and being willing to be wrong and critiqued and say, you know what, and even change your perspective on some things because you see, wow, there's truth in that. Like there's certain things I'm not going to change on, like whatever, scripture, Christ crucified, then it is what it is. But, but there's some things that's like, you know, that's a good point. And I, can change, I think balance is, is that. I've seen some people be able to do that. I try to do that when I'm, when I'm having discussions. And when I'm preaching, I'm in a zone. I just, that's different. But I'm not in everything that you do. You're not always that way. But when I'm preaching to our church, there's passion, there's the spirits moving, there's a lot going on. But I think balance is, you know, in terms of perspective, and, and for me personally, I will try to balance out what's being said. So, like, if everyone on the panel is dogging the conservatives, then I'm going to speak from that perspective some. If everyone, like, I was on this panel, it was just all, they were 100% conservative. You couldn't say nothing except I agree with everything you're saying. So I was like, I told them, hey, listen, there's some things that y'all said I agree with, but I think because y'all are saying that, I'm going to push back from the other side. They were going to speak your mind, brother, and I just jumped in. And so I think we need to, I think we need to all to be able to do that. Names? It's elusive right now because I'm in a different zone right now. I have to, I can't think of who I, because I listen to so many people. So I can get back to you. It would take me a while to think about who are the people, because I don't really listen to people who are balanced right now. I listen to what would be the opposite of sort of how I, my default, so I can kind of learn and get balanced. But I'm, 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 right now, I'm not thinking of who is balanced like that. That, that, I, that I think people would know. To highlight the actual words restraining evil or just to highlight the idea of restraining evil? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, any, any verse that talks about doing good is essentially restraining evil. So stuff like Galatians 6.10. Do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith, right? That's the, that's the thrust of, 
of restraining evil is to is to do good to to do. Uh, other verses that are talking about restraining evil, like Second uh, Corinthians ten three through five, you know, we take our thoughts captive, and we it says the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. Uh, what's the what's the case? Because uh, Mike uses King James sometimes. I like the way it was a, a not carnal, right? It says we're taking every thought captive to force it to obey Christ. Like that's a that's a restraining evil passage. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty four. Stir one another up to love and good works. Like that word stir means to provoke and to like kind of irritate each other to love and good works. You got uh, Proverbs 27, 17 for iron sharpens iron. Right. So the so so the a man uh, uh, sharpens the countenance of his brother. So you have uh, verses that are talking about that. There's some Psalms that the numbers aren't coming to my mind because we've been reading through the Psalms and the biblical counseling. But Psalms is talking about wanting God to restrain evil and then those things. I think uh, Matthew 23, 3, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he corrects them and he says, woe to you Pharisees because you tithe, you tithe mint, rue, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. We're going to talk about this some next week. He said of the law and he said they're justice, mercy, and righteousness. So he's saying, look, you're actually giving into those things. You're rejecting the way to your mouth. So these are all things that like he was basically correcting the Pharisees. You're not restraining evil. You're neglecting the restraint of evil. And you should have done all of it. You shouldn't have just tithed. You should have done this. But he calls that the weightier matters of the law. So there's a lot of and there's some stuff I'm going to talk about next week that will speak more directly to that. But I think there's a lot of verses that highlight the that evil. So even I mean, even Ephesians six, what we just read, right? Put on the full armor of God so you can stand the schemes of the devil. And then it tells you to put on a helmet of faith and a belt of truth and the right, breastplate of righteousness. And it talks about these things so you can restrain evil. I mean, even the very notion in Matthew 28 8 through, of going out to make disciples. You're making disciples what? That will change evil. You got John 12 where Jesus says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So Jesus is by far saying, when I die on the cross, I'm going to draw people to believe me and the ruler of this world will be cast out, which means that people are going to believe and then evil is going to be restrained. I mean, First Corinthians 15 talks about death and saying uh, uh, death, where is your sting? Like the fear of death is to some degree uh, not allowing people to restrain evil. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. I mean, it, we can party all night, right? We can we can. There's a lot of verses that have the idea of restraining evil in this in this world and, and sometimes it's with others sometimes it's with ourselves but even the notion of making disciples is essentially pulling people out of a uh, Jude 22 I think snatch them out of the fire right that's 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 a restraining evil snatching people out of hellfire so Amen. Stay balanced. 
So not only would I, I well, so I would agree. Let me let me just tweak what you're what you're saying, because I would agree. But I don't think it's pastors preaching moral law. So I think and this is what we're going to talk about more so next week. This is the basis of next week's message for the most part. But I'll just say this. I don't think the issue is that pastors have preached or not preaching moral law. I think I think that's all people are sometimes preaching. And I think they're doing it to the detriment of practicing it. So, again, to use the example, how does the church, like, here's the thing. We talk about preach the gospel, the God, Jesus is the answer. We've got to pre- keep preaching the gospel, right? That mantra has been the same since 1619. Like when Cotton Mather and some of the early theologians, Presbyterian theologians, when they came to America and they were preaching, they were preaching the gospel. Jonathan Edwards and all the George Whitfield, all the people that we gather historically, people that we respect, they all preach the gospel, but a lot of them had slaves. And slavery was approved of by the church. So I think what you get is not so much the failure to preach moral law, it's the failure to live biblically to the law that you're preaching. So what we have now is 400 years as a nation, 413 if you count 1607, landing in Jamestown, Virginia, Apparently, 1619 is when the first slaves came. So at least from, well, we, could, we could count 1607 because really those were white slaves who came from England to America to start to be the slaves and they just weren't, couldn't do it. Or they could escape and you wouldn't know who they were because they all looked alike. So uh, you got 400 years of gospel preaching that in effect has not been lived out. And this is the culture we find ourselves in. We did not live a neutral world until Donald Trump got in office and now there's been chaos. This has been going, I mean, Juneteenth is essentially, you know, you figure the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, right? Juneteenth happened uh, June 19th, 1865. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964 happened in June 21st, right? So the Declaration of Independence was said all men are created equal and free, but then you had slaves had to be declared free 90 years later, and then another, you know, 100 years after that, then you signed the Civil Rights Act for black people. So again, it's just, we're, we're, it's not the failure to preach moral law, it's the hypocrisy to obey that law. And it's the same thing Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, he said the same thing in Matthew, read Matthew 23. He, when you read that and, 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 and juxtapose that to what you to the American church, and you'll see like, wow, this is very relatively the same message. It's just a lot of hypocrisy, and, and I think a lot's happening now because of that. So we'll talk about that next week. I will get into that in specifics. So I just uh, happy Father's Day. Thank you guys for being a part of the church and, and being here, and thank you for tolerating me and and what we're doing. And and it's not like we don't tolerate y'all. So. <laughs> now we love you guys and we're grateful to be pastors at this church and to be in this church but everything we said stands we, we want to be a church that honors the Lord not submits to any philosophy or political ideology we will be very practical next week there's some things we're going to look at there's a, a foundation that we need to have one, one missing piece and then we're going to talk practically how do we do this both personally and both communally as a church all right, having said that, thank you guys. We'll see you Wednesday. This week, I think it's one another this week. So we'll see you for Wednesday, one another. And, uh, and for fathers, enjoy Father's Day. 
and happy or whatever to everyone else who has something else going on and look forward to seeing you guys on Wednesday. All right, pray for me. I'm doing something at one o'clock to serve a church and hopefully that'd be helpful and I'm going to go home and hang with my boys. All right, see you guys. <laughs>